And the rest of you, it's wonderful to see you. Thank you for being here on Super Bowl Sunday. I know there's seven pre-pre-pre-game shows you could be watching right now, but you've chosen to be here in the house of the Lord instead, and so I really appreciate that. Um, I hate to disappoint you, but I'm not going to do a Super Bowl message today. I, I, I don't know if you thought that I'm that pastor that's going to do a Super Bowl message. I'm not. As a matter of fact, I feel a little bit bad. I'm going to kind of do the opposite. We're actually going to have a little bit of a somber message this morning, but it's perfectly okay later to go and just have fun and have a good time. I know that might be kind of weird to have a somber morning and then you're eating a bunch of nachos and watching the Chiefs beat the 49ers. Um, But you know what? I think one of the secrets of life is learning to balance joy and sorrow at the same time. I'm even thinking of writing a book called A Wedding and a Funeral, Balancing the Joy and Sorrow of Life by the Grace of God. And, and it, it comes from a memory I had years ago where literally I did a wedding and a funeral on the same day. And I remember how strange it was to fully be present and to participate in the experience of the people I was serving, I had to experience and enter into both sorrow and joy at the same time. I think a lot of us only know how to handle one or the other. Either we want all joy and we want no sorrow, or we have all sorrow and we won't even accept any joy. But I think one of the secrets of life is to somehow learn how to balance both at the same time. And so I don't think today is weird that we're going to look at a somber subject, a somber passage of Scripture, and yet I perfectly expect you later to be able to shift gears and enjoy hanging out and watching the Super Bowl or, or not. My wife refuses. She said she'll watch 45 minutes, and that's, that's it. She won't enjoy it. She pointed that out, but she will watch 45 minutes of it. So we live in a weird day and age when a major event is considered old news just seven days later. But that's where I find myself this morning. I'm sure all of you have heard by now the tragic deaths of basketball superstar Kobe Bryant at 41 years old of the Los Angeles Lakers, his 13-year-old daughter Gianna, and seven other people aboard a helicopter. So apparently it happened not long before service started last week, but that news didn't break until later. And I remember after service, I was talking with some people in the parking lot, and somebody just kind of mentioned in passing, and I, I, I didn't know what the reference was to exactly at the time, but the person said something like, yes, you know, life is strange and unexpected like what happened to Kobe Bryant. And I was like, what are you talking about? I have no idea. And when I got home, I saw the news, and it was over every major news network, about the helicopter crash that Kobe Bryant and his daughter and those others experienced last Sunday. So it's just seven days later, but in the internet age, that can, can be considered old. Um, so I thought of not talking about it, but there were a couple different things that came up during the week where I really felt like, no, I want to actually address this, and I want to do it from Scripture and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a break from the book of Exodus, which we're currently going through, which is an amazing study in the life of Moses. But we are going to stick with Moses. 
And we're going to read the one psalm out of the entire book of psalms that is attributed to the man Moses. And so if you have your Bibles, please open up to Psalm 90. I'll have the passage up on the screen behind me. And if you would, please follow along with me now as we read the Word of God. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This is God's Word. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever You had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are seventy years, and if by reason of strength they are eighty years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow." For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which You have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let Your work appear to Your servants and Your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You that in times of trouble, in seasons of difficulty, when the world around us seems to be shaken, we thank You that You are ever for us a tower and a fortress, a refuge and a home in which we will always be safe. Teach us this morning to live before You humbly, to give up our pride and our arrogance about life and our plans for it. Teach us the wisdom of doing Your will and of living each day for the Kingdom of God. We thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus, so that these words are more than wishful thinking, but are true and powerful. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
A light fog had settled on the runway of John Wayne Airport Sunday morning when Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gianna, and six other passengers boarded a chartered helicopter to fly to a basketball tournament in Thousand Oaks. Half an hour later, they were flying over thickening clouds in the San Fernando Valley. The pilot was worried enough to ask flight controllers to keep track of them. As he approached the hills of Calabasas at 150 miles per hour, they radioed him, telling him he was too low for them to see on radar. The pilot commenced a climb, rising 765 feet in 36 seconds, enough to clear adjacent hills. What happened next was mysterious. The Sikorsky S-76B suddenly veered off course and descended rapidly. The twin-engine aircraft dropped 325 feet in 14 seconds, reaching 176 miles per hour before losing contact and hitting the hillside above Las Virgenes Road, killing all nine people on board. Federal investigators on Monday began a wide-ranging investigation into the crash heard round the world. They planned to look at the history of the pilot and helicopter maintenance records as well as the foggy conditions which can quickly disorient pilots. The helicopter was not carrying a black box, cockpit voice recorder, or flight data recorder, officials initially said, although investigators did recover an iPad with ForeFlight, an app pilots used to log flight plans and weather briefings. Bryant, 41 years old, who lived in Newport Beach, had made the flight to Camarillo Airport many times. On Sunday, he was scheduled to coach his 13-year-old daughter's team game against the Fresno Lady Heat at his Mamba Sports Academy in Thousand Oaks. The tournament, called the Mamba Cup, featured boys and girls travel teams from 4th through 8th grades. Accompanying the Bryants aboard that helicopter were John Altabelli, 56, the longest-tenured baseball coach in Orange Coast College history, his wife Carrie, who was 46, their daughter Alyssa, who was 13, Christina Mauser, who was 38, an assistant basketball coach at the Mamba Academy, and Sarah Chester, 45, and Chester's daughter Peyton, 13, reported the Los Angeles Times. While fatal accidents happen on the road every day, over a hundred a day car accidents, fatalities in the United States. So if you think about it, it's an everyday occurrence that somebody gets into a vehicle of some kind and dies. Yet this one particular accident in Southern California has shocked and grieved millions of people all over the world. Makeshift memorial shrines have been erected in many familiar places, including Kobe Bryant's own high school and the Staples Center in Los Angeles, where he played so many memorable games for the Lakers. Professional sports games have been postponed in his honor, and many stars and celebrities have expressed their remorse and canceled various performances. It is indeed a unique moment in time when a multitude of people has been simultaneously gripped by the transience of human life. So the question is, 
in such times of loss, where should we turn for comfort and hope? And how such, such tragic events as the death of Kobe Bryant change how we live our lives? For the answers, we turn to God. And we turn to the Word of God, the Bible. And today, specifically, we are looking at words inspired by the Holy Spirit through Moses, the man of God, recorded in Psalm 90. So look with me at Psalm 90. There's five points I want to make about how we should respond to tragic loss such as this and how it should change our lives. Number one, fix the eyes of your heart on the eternality of God. Look at verses 1 and 2. Moses begins, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever You had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. Now, biblical scholars, experts in the genre of poetry, scholars in the book of Psalms, they point out that Psalm 90 would typically be classified as a lament psalm. It certainly doesn't start out that way. It starts out with a meditation of God. You would think that, hey, if we're just going to reflect on God and kind of detach from all the things I can see and just kind of ponder God, look up into the stars and ponder the big questions of the meaning of life, maybe he's in a, a peaceful place of life, maybe he's in a happy situation where he's free to reflect on such seemingly esoteric things, and yet the answer in the middle of the psalm is no. Apparently, we don't know the specifics of the context. They are deliberately left out. But something has happened to the community. Something has happened to the people of God so that they feel the weight of the transience of life. The fact that we are here one day and gone another has become poignant for the people of Israel. Furthermore, they don't just believe that life is fleeting, but that there is actual evil in the world. There is injustice in the world. And they believe that ultimately sin has brought this into the world. And so they're reflecting on God and asking for God's mercy to be shown. And so for these reasons, we recognize that it's a lament, but notice how he begins his lament. He does not begin by lamenting whatever it was that has happened, though he'll get there. The psalmist Moses, the man of God, who's led the people of Israel out of Egypt and journeying to a promised land he will never see. A man who is wise who knows what to do in trying times. And the first thing he does is fixes his eyes on the eternality of God. When we're hit by the temporality of life, the transience of life, when a pillar of your life is removed, and the pillars of our lives are often the things we can see, a mother or a father, a wife or a husband, a son or a daughter, a job, 
a clean bill of health. One of these things you, you didn't even know you were building your life on it. You just expected it to be there and to never go away. As foolish as that is, if we simply step out and reflect, and yet that's really what we've been doing. Building a life on something we thought could never be taken. And then the day comes when it is. And the temptation for us and the temptation for Israel is not to step back and immediately reflect on the eternality of God. It's to stare even more intently over the loss of the thing that we once stood upon. It is to stare at it. It is to grieve over it. Or perhaps it is to look to something else I can see. Well, I've lost this person. Well, I need another one. I've lost this situation. Well, I need to fix this. I need to do this. That is our normal mode of operation. We begin there. When we lose what we can see, we try to salvage something else we can see. But Moses says that's a mistake. Because what you're doing, and that's not to say it's wrong or sinful, it simply doesn't fix the problem. Notice what Moses says. He says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before anything in creation came into existence, before there was a world, before there were mountains, before there was land, God always was. And Moses says, I'm going to step back in this time of loss. And I'm going to reflect upon where is the only safe ground upon which to build my life? In this moment, should I continue to build upon the kinds of things I've been building on my whole life? Or now, is this a time to step back and say, I need to build my life on something that lasts. I want to seek. I want to know. I want to find. I want to experience that which lasts forever. And we can sing songs about romantic love and we, we seek that kind of love in human relationship that will last forever, but it never does. We can seek it in human work and human effort and things I've accomplished and the name I make for myself, but that doesn't last either. We can even try to take care of our lives and take care of our health, which is a, a wise thing to do, but at the end of the day, I will not prevent the day of my death. In times of loss, it is wise, as Moses teaches us, to fix our eyes on the eternality of God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are our home. You are our dwelling place. You are the place where I ultimately belong, and you are the one upon whom I can build a solid foundation for living the rest of my life. Because if you're going to go through life, which changes, you're changing. You're changing every day. You may or may not notice it from day to day, but you are changing. Everything around you is changing. The people you're with are changing. The world is changing. Politics are changing. The culture is changing. Language is changing. Everything is changing. And so much of what we see in the media and the polarization and, and the anger and the hostility, so much of it has to do with things people aren't even talking about. And it's people seeking to come to grips with transience in life. People don't do well with change. 
They don't do well when they see things that they thought were a foregone conclusion. Certain cultural assumptions. Certain beliefs. Certain ways of doing things. And when those are changed and you see people freaking out as though their life depends upon it, it's probably because it does for them. It's what they're building their lives on. But the psalmist teaches us in an ever-changing world where everything is changing, a wise person makes their home in the eternal God. The God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The One who is from Olam El Olam. Eternity to eternity. Everlasting to everlasting. It is to say that time has no claim upon God. Time is sovereign over each one of us. We can act, and I know I certainly did when I was younger in my teens and in my 20s. I acted foolishly like I was sovereign over time. I could just treat my body a certain way. I could just think certain things, do certain things, believe certain things. And those consequences would just never come back to haunt me. And then I would always feel this way. I would always have this kind of energy. I'd always have this kind of strength. I'd always have the, the kind of confidence that I had back then. And I see over time, all of those things have changed. And even though in one sense I feel more vulnerable now than ever before in my entire life, I am also more confident than I've ever been in my entire life. Because I have come to believe and accept the words of Moses here that from everlasting to everlasting, God is the Lord. All I have to know is who God is for stability in my life. It's not about controlling this person and that person and the economy and this, that, and the other. I'll deal with all of those things. But I'm building my life upon the Lord. So fix your eyes on the eternality of God. Number two, recognize the momentary nature of all human life. Look at verses 3 through 6. He says, You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. It seems like it, goes with, it should go without saying that we do recognize the momentary nature of all human life. But I know this for myself, and I think the millions of people, whether they were particular fans or not, who've been shocked and dismayed and even heartbroken over the loss of Kobe Bryant. But if you think about it, the fact that human life is momentary in that moment is a felt, in terms of a felt experience, it is a shock. There seems to be a disconnect between what our mind knows about life and death and the way our heart really feels about it. In our minds, we know we're all going to die and that that's 100% inescapable. We all know that. But in our hearts, we don't live that way. I think particularly when we're young, I, I, at least for me, speaking of myself, I didn't live that way at all. 
I acted like I couldn't die. Did anybody else do that when you were a teenager? No? Yeah, I mean, I thought I could drive 100 miles an hour, and that's not a big deal. I remember when all me and my friends grew up in Northern California, and if you don't know this, Northern California is very unlike Southern California. It's actually very, very different in so many ways. We even got our own little language and little sayings that we say, but kind of where I grew up in Northern California, it was a haven for muscle car enthusiasts. So if you go up to Santa Rosa, Sonoma, Napa, you'll see all these guys in Chevelles and 56 Bel Airs and Oldsmobile 442s with 455 cubic inch V8 engines, all, all that kind of stuff. They're into the old school muscle cars. And I remember a bunch of my high school friends and a bunch of other guys I knew from surrounding schools would all get in the cars and try to apparently relive the Detroit 1960s days. And they would do drag racing on streets, on city streets, and see how fast your car could go. Well, at 16 years old, a lot of these 16-year-olds felt like that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. At my age now, I'm thinking like, okay, how heavy is this car? How small are the tires? What if you get a flat tire? What if there's a cop? What if someone comes around the corner you didn't see and they're driving on the wrong side of the road? What if the guy you're racing jerks the wheel a quarter of an inch to the right at 90 miles? Like I'm thinking about all these things, but at 16, people who know that death is going to happen, they would never deny on an exam that death was not going to visit them one day, and yet the way they live their lives is though it was never going to happen. When such tragic events happen in our lives, I do think we need to actually consciously recognize the momentary nature of all human life. We act, we feel as though all this stuff just has to stay the same and, and it will stay the same. And to some extent, you kind of have to do that. I have to assume this relationship's okay or I wouldn't be able to go to work today. I'd have to kind of assume, you know, my, when I go turn my money in, then my money will have value. I mean, there's all these things you could worry about and you could be so bogged down with cares about what may or may not be. You don't do anything meaningful. But on the other hand, we can go to the other extreme and we can become incredibly prideful and arrogant in our assumption and that the things around us will just last forever. There's a book in the New Testament that we also classify as wisdom literature, and that's the book of James. In chapter 4, verse 13, the Apostle James says something very mosaic. He says, come now, you who say, today and tomorrow we will go to such and such a place. Buy and sell and make a profit. For what is your life? It is like a vapor. Here one day and gone the next. We are to live each day recognizing that this matters, but it is not eternal. What is seen is transient. What is unseen is what lasts forever. And we actually have to practice this belief. This can't just be theoretical or it will do you no good when you bump up against tragedy and loss. You must fully contemplate it and enter into it with your life. You must make decisions based upon this fact. 
You must not act as though this life is all there is. If you believe this life is all there is and after that nothing, Christianity will never make any sense to you. Because Christianity deals with ultimate things, not passing temporal things alone. Number three, consider the fact that the ultimate cause for death is the curse of sin. Look at verses 7 through 11. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath, we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. Is Moses saying helicopters go down because somebody sinned? That's not what Moses is saying. A lot of times when we look at a particular situation, a particular incident, and we ask of that particular incident, why? The Bible often does not answer the why, the specific why of that question. And Moses knows that. He wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses is the one who wrote Genesis 1-3. through Moses is the one who knows not just why did this person die, why did that person die. Moses knows why anyone dies at all. And so for Moses, when he looks at a particular loss, he doesn't see it in isolation from a bigger reality. The bigger reality for Moses is that what makes death possible is sin it doesn't mean it's the immediate cause of this situation or that one but it is the instrumental cause that makes death possible sin introduced mortality into the human race god did not intend for people to die but to live in perfect fellowship life and love with him And we chose to do life our own way. And death is introduced into the world. And even if you say, well, I didn't deserve this and they didn't deserve that, well, that's how life works. When you're born into a certain family, what did you do to deserve that or not to deserve that? Is life really fair? Were you born in this country or that country or to this family or to that family because you did something good? Or you did something bad? We are affected by the decisions of those who have come before us both for good and for ill. And Moses knows that death is the same way. There is a genealogy, as it were, to death. Death comes from somewhere. And so for Moses, he's thinking of what ultimately has gone wrong. Not just what has gone wrong in this situation. He's taken the immediate secondary question that we can see with our eyes and feel with our hearts, and he uses it to understand the greater question of life. 
And so we ought to consider the fact that the ultimate cause for death is the curse of sin. Well, what value is that? Is that just theoretical, theological truth? Or does that actually help you in any way? If you've experienced the loss of someone, you can have all kinds of emotions. One of the emotions I've had at various times, not just for the loss of my dad, but others, was anger. Felt angry. Maybe a little bit toward God. Mostly not, but a little bit. But angry just at the fact this could happen to somebody. I was just angry about it. It's just not right. It just shouldn't be. And what this truth teaches us is that your anger is right. But it may not be rightly placed. If we see death and we are angered by it, and we say this is not right, then we must hear the Bible say, yes, it is not right. Death is in the world because something went wrong. And so truly, if you hate death, if you hate that it happens, then you ought to hate sin which makes death possible. But for most people, they go through life hanging on to one while letting go of the other. I'm going to hate death and I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be angry at God. I'm going to be angry at anybody I think caused it or who could have made things different. But I'm not going to hate the sin in the world that makes death possible. I'm going to go on loving it cherishing it in my life and letting it guide my life and my decisions till the day I die and death will have its final governance over me forever. People live that way every day. But what Moses' prayer is for is that we would see past the immediate experience of the loss of a loved one and see what has brought it into the world. Consider the fact the ultimate cause for death is the curse of sin. Point number four. Learn to live life humbly before God and to leave, eat, live each day fully. Look at verse 12. Moses says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Verse 12 I kind of see as the center of this psalm. It's what was being led up to. So what do we do? What does this knowledge, what does this information actually do? How should tragic events like the loss of Kobe Bryant and, and our confusion about the stability of life and the transience of life, what should it do? Hopefully it doesn't do nothing. Hopefully you don't just get sad and depressed and confused and then just numb it, ignore it, sweep it under the rug until next time. Hopefully you let it change your life. It should change your life. And what Moses says here is learn to live life humbly before God and live each day fully. The humble part comes in acknowledging that tomorrow is promised to no one. And I don't intend that to be a morbid thought. It's simply real, isn't it? There is no guarantee. I need to live life humbly. Remember, I'm not sovereign over time. Time is sovereign over me. But through Jesus Christ, we are in the relationship with the God 
whom is sovereign over time. Time has no claim upon God. So we live each day humbly before God, knowing that I am not in control. Many of us live each day like we are in control. That's arrogant. All it takes is a little illness, a loss of your income, a loss of your job, a betrayal by somebody you trusted, and you will be reminded quite quickly, you are not in control. Many people cannot bear to live without control. And they seek it the rest of their lives. How can I gain control over others and over the forces around me so I do not have to feel the vulnerability of being under the sovereignty of time? But the man or woman who wants to walk with God through life lives humbly, acknowledging that I am not ultimately in control. I'm responsible, but I'm not in control. And the second part of that is, and to live each day fully. Even non-Christian philosophers will, in their own way, get around to saying something like this. Live each day fully. Do you see how this is a good thing? If you believe you've got an infinite number of days before you, why not just waste time? Why not just do things that don't matter. Maybe they're not sinful or wrong, but you know, hey, maybe, maybe you don't have a problem doing that. Hey, if it feels good and it's sinful, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. But what if it's not necessarily sinful? It's just a waste of your time. If you believe, I don't have an infinite number of days. I have a very limited time. Time is precious and it cannot be replaced. Then each day really matters. And I think this brings hope to so many people because so many people that I talk to in their jobs day to day, they tell me, Pastor Mike, you have a job where you probably feel like you're making a difference. I don't always feel that way, by the way. But you have that kind of job. Me, I just get up and it's like Groundhog Day. I do the same thing over and over and over and over again. I don't feel like what I'm doing matters. I'm just doing it to pay the bills, to eat and sleep, wake up, repeat, do it again. What this teaches us is that each day matters. And that your job today is not to be in control of everything. It is to simply live fully within that day. If it's a, quote, ordinary day, you live fully within it. Live extraordinarily within the ordinary. Live for things that are eternal and matter through the vehicle of things that seem like just another Monday. Live humbly before God. Live each day fully. And lastly, number five, set your ultimate hope for joy and work that endures upon Jesus Christ. Look at verses 13 through 17. Moses says, Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. 
Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The psalm could have ended in verse 12. Tragedy has struck. You've used it to look at the big picture of life to contemplate time and eternity, to enter into a relationship with the God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you've even gained wisdom for yourself. You know now not to live arrogantly, but humbly. You know not to waste time because you have no time to waste. You know now to live each day fully, the best that you possibly can by the grace of God. Psalm 90 could have stopped there and it would have been a good psalm. But I think for many of us, Like for Moses, deep, deep down, that's not enough. It's not enough. We want more. And Moses expresses here he wants two things. He wants joy. Who here today does not want joy? Who here today has so much joy you don't know what to do with it? You just... Want to give it away. You wish you were a little less joyful. Who here is not doing what they do, at least partly for joy? We all want joy. Everybody. Christian, non-Christian, religious, irreligious. We all want joy. That's not the question. The question is, where do you find this joy? Where do you find joy that is pure, and not impure? Where do you find joy that is everlasting and not fleeting? Where can we get this joy? The second thing that Moses wants, he wants what he does with his life to last. He wants it to matter. He wants his work to matter. That's not a trivial thing. Establish the work of our hands, Lord. Make it firm. Make it last. Now, work here may not necessarily be what you get paid for. What work ultimately is, is what you bring to the world through your life. What benefit, what positive, what blessing do you bring to the world? Sometimes that's largely through your job, what you get paid for. For other people, they'll tell you that it's the opposite for them. Most of what they do to benefit the world is what they do when they're not doing their job. They'll say, I do this job to get paid so I can live to free me up to do what my life is really all about. So work is what we do with our lives that brings blessing and benefit to the world. And it is within us, it is put in us to desire to bring something good, beautiful, and lasting into the world with the time that we have. But with Moses, we often encounter opposition. We counter trouble. Some people don't want to build beautiful things. Some people take joy in destroying beautiful things. Destroy lives. There are many, many people in this world, and I know too many people who have been victimized by people, who've been hurt by people who love to destroy what is beautiful. 
we find opposition. We also find that even when we do good, we build it. We build something good. In a day, it can be knocked down. And so we wrestle over, again, the transience, not even just of our own physical life, but the work of our hands, the things that we do. And so Moses is praying to God and saying, Lord God, at least balance out the joy and evil in our lives. That's a pretty humble request. He's not asking for all joy. He's like, let let the scales of joy and sorrow not be overwhelming. If I've gone through a lot of sorrow, Lord, just give me some joy to balance it out. And Lord, whatever work we do, just let it last. This is a noble prayer. This is a very human prayer. But how can such things be true? Who's going to fulfill these things? Moses himself comes to the end of his life. And the work for which he was prepared his entire life, he never got to see the full fruit of. Before Moses dies, he's in the wilderness and he's on top of a mountain. And from that edge of the mountain, from that edge of the cliff, he looks off and he sees the promised land. The very place God had told him, you can see with your eyes, but you will never tread upon with your feet. That is where Moses ends his life. So it seems as though Moses is desiring these things. He's desiring joy. He's desiring his work to be established. And he gets to the precipice of it. And then the story is left hanging. There's no fulfillment. The last chapter is missing. But we also know that before Moses died, the Spirit inspired him to speak of a prophet who would come. One who would be greater than he. One who would give a new law. One that the people ought to listen to. And that person was Jesus Christ. And if we look at these five things from Psalm 90, we see that Jesus sums up every single one. When we're told to fix the eyes of our hearts on the eternality of God, we are reminded of Jesus' statement in John 8.58, I am who I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is the eternal God. When we say recognize the momentary nature of human life, that it's here one day and gone tomorrow, we remember that Jesus too was cut down in the prime of His life. And so that we can know when we experience tragedy and when the young die too young, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our sorrow. When we hear that we should consider the fact that the ultimate cause for death is the curse of sin, we can be reminded that Jesus died on a cross to bear the curse of death upon Himself so that eternal life might become possible. When we hear we are to live life humbly before God and to live each day fully, we can hear the words of Jesus who told us to seek first His kingdom and not all the other cares of this life. And lastly, when we're told to set our ultimate hope for joy and for work that endures, 
we look to Jesus who in John 15.11 said, My joy may be in you, and so that your joy may be full. Jesus came to fulfill the song of Moses. Jesus is the one who is able to pour out a joy that is everlasting because it flows from eternity. We are able to look to Jesus and know that His work in the world, work for His kingdom, that whatever we do for Him, Jesus even said, even if what you do is give a glass of water to a thirsty person in My name, you will not lose your reward in heaven. Nothing you do for God can be taken away. If you do it for the love of God, for the grace of God, even if someone comes along and swipes down what you're doing. If we build a beautiful, ornate church building one day and 50 years from now some corporation buys the land and knocks it down, we have not lost our reward because nothing we do for Christ is lost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just... Thank You for being our dwelling place. I thank You that in times of great trouble, Your arms are open wide for all of Your people to find refuge and strength in the shadow of Your wings. Lord, we pray for all who are grieving. We pray for the family and friends of all those lost upon that helicopter last week that they would find refuge in You. We pray for the many people, the millions of people, the millions of people in different countries around the world, different ethnicities, different languages, and yet these events have shaken them too. We pray that with Moses, You would use this occasion in their lives to bring them into an eternal relationship with You. We pray now in this time of response as we sing and praise You for Your Word, as we praise You for what You've spoken, as we praise You for who You are, and praise You for what You're going to do in our lives. We just pray that we would enter in fully in trust, in faith, receiving You, the eternal foundation in a temporal world. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.